Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for coming. As you probably have heard or seen, we are going through 1 Corinthians, so I'd encourage you guys, if you have a Bible, to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are some up here. We'd like you to take that home. Uh, if you do have a Bible and you didn't bring it, the words will be on the screen for you, so you can follow along up there as well. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn to His Word. Father, we want your blessing upon your word in your people. And so we just ask that you'd help us. We ask that you'd enlighten us, help us grow. We, we need your word. We need your spirit for us to move forward for your cause. And so we ask for those things and we can pray with great confidence knowing that you want your glory and you will have your glory in your people. And so we, we ask that you'd use us and that you'd equip us that you would instruct us so that we could be a people for your glory. Bless Sojourn. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at the stage now where uh, I can ask Anna questions and she can respond and she can ask me questions and, and I can respond. And so now she's really curious about lots of things. We're kind of in that why stage. So you tell her something, she says, why, why, why? And there's like endless why questions that she can ask. But a lot of times what she'll do now is she'll open up a book or something. She'll say, Daddy, what, what is that? And I will, I will tell her what it is. And then a lot of times what happens now, we've seen in the last couple of weeks for sure, is I'll tell her what something is and she'll say, no. Like, no? <laughs> what do you mean no? I, you asked me what it was. I told you. This is, this is not like up for debate. It's just this is what it is. And she just says, no. <laughs> Who do you think you are, little girl? Like, do you, do you not think that I might have an idea of what I'm talking about with a kid's book? I probably can identify correctly the objects that are located within the kid's book, right? But she still has this idea that no, somehow I'm wrong and I'm not right. And what she's kind of saying there, without her even knowing it, is that there's something that she knows that I don't. She's a little bit smarter than me. So she can ask me the question, but if I don't give the right answer, it's like, no, that's, that's not it. I'm a little bit smarter than you. You are clearly wrong here. I will figure this out on my own. And, and really, when we come to 1 Corinthians, we, we've seen this idea that has infiltrated the church that is kind of communicating that same thing to Paul and to God. That Paul is giving them wisdom, wisdom from the cross, wisdom from God, this, this foolish message. And what instead they've done is they've kind of like, well, we, we, we like that, but we want to carry along other wisdom as well. And so they, they kind of say to Paul and to God, like, we might be a little bit smarter than you. I mean, you don't know Corinth like we do. So if we just use some of Corinth's wisdom, we receive your message too. We kind of blend those two together. Then we'll be on solid footing. Then we'll be in good shape. And so this is what they're saying. If we just follow some worldly wisdom, then what they're communicating to God and to Paul is like, we have this figured out. We, we really don't need you as much as what you think. And that's where the Corinthians were. So often that's what we communicate as well by just our actions and the way we live. We communicate that like, well, I mean, thanks for instructing me here, God, but I've kind of got this figured out on my own. And this is why it's gracious for God to write this word to us. This is why it's gracious for us to sit underneath it. And Paul writes to them going after the same problem that he's kind of been going after in these first three chapters about this worldly wisdom and, and this division that's causing problems in, Corinthian, in, the, in the Corinthian church. And he gives them almost one more time for these first three chapters, kind of summing everything up. Let no one boast in men. 
This is the, the point of this end of chapter 3. This is kind of wrapping up all the almost that he's done with this whole division that he started back in chapter 1, verse 10. Let no one boast in men. And he tells them here, there's, there's some reasons for this. For all things are yours and you are Christ's. That's what he says at the end of, of chapter 3. And so in saying this, Paul's giving these concluding remarks on, on division within the church. And he starts out with this one big reason to start out. Well, he'll see two different reasons why he says don't boast in men. But the first one is that men's wisdom is folly. And so like I said, many in the Corinthian church had brought in worldly wisdom into the church. They'd brought in and carried over ideas from the world into the church, assuming that they'll work just fine. But if we look in verse 18, Paul begins to address this. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone, you, any one of you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, Paul, he's, he's aware of this very present temptation, not just for the Corinthians, but for us as well, that we can deceive ourselves. We can be deceived and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that somehow we've got things figured out, that we are enlightened, that we are all wise, that we don't need any other help. We can look to God and just say, no, nah, not into that. And Paul knows this. He understands his own heart. He understands the Corinthians heart. He understands our hearts and says, let no one deceive himself about this. You can be deceived here. And so what is happening is that they were evaluating things. They were evaluating wisdom, specifically wrongly. They were looking at it through the world's lens and not through this gospel lens, not through the lens of Christ that we've seen already through the first three chapters of Corinthians. And when they looked at things through this worldly wisdom, what happened is divisions happened. They said, no, it's a good thing for us to follow certain individuals, for us to have strong leaders that are really good at speaking, for them to be powerful in certain ways. Because then, if we attach our name to them, the world will think we're good, and other people will think that we're elevated in some sort of status. This is carried over into the church, and it's caused division. And so you can see in the first three chapters, I mean, you could go back through and read them, there's this huge contrast between worldly wisdom and the wisdom that comes from God. Paul wants to make this distinction very, very clear because the wisdom of the world that they were following is all about power and prestige and those who are of noble birth. They want strong leaders and to attach their name to strong leaders so that they can be something and elevate their status. That's how the world did it. That's how they want to do it. They want impressive rhetoric. They want impressive sophistication. They want impressive uh, argumentation before everybody so they can put on a display and show people how good they are. This is the worldly wisdom that's carried them up to this point, and it's caused division in the church. And Paul's saying this, if you continue following this worldly wisdom, it's going to cause more and more division. It's a problem that you are having, and you need to not do it, because what is happening is in this division, they're not boasting in what they should be boasting in. Instead, they're boasting in men. They're boasting in individuals. So he says, don't be deceived. This kind of wisdom will not work in the church. It will not work. Do not be deceived. You're carrying over some worldly wisdom into the church. Don't expect that to be uh, receiving God's blessing. Don't expect there to be godly growth there. Expect division. Expect problems. Don't be deceived. And so he has some instruction for them. If anyone thinks he's wise in this age, what is he to do? Let him become a fool that he may become wise. 
If anybody thinks he's wise, here's what he needs to do. He needs to become a fool. That seems like the opposite way to go toward wisdom. (laughs) If anyone thinks he's wise, you need to become a fool so that he can become wise. So what does Paul mean here? When we look through the, the context of this book and what we've seen so far, what is wisdom from God? Wisdom from God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Wisdom from God is the gospel. And so what he means is saying, forget about all this worldly stuff. That stuff cannot save you. And it looks upon the gospel and it looks upon Christ and it says, that's foolish. And that's a weak savior. And he says, wisdom is becoming a fool in the world's eyes and grasping hold of that gospel. This life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has made you right before God. Grasp hold of that message, this foolish message of the gospel, the folly of the cross where this weak Savior is crucified. That's what you got to grab a hold of. And in the world's eyes, that is becoming a fool. He says, that's how you become wise, is you you get rid of everything else. You become a fool in the world's eyes. You empty yourself of worldly wisdom and you grasp hold of God's wisdom. And you say, this is true wisdom. And when one becomes a fool and fully trusts in the gospel, then there is no room for boasting in men. It's not exactly the, the, the sermon that I'd particularly want to preach or that Paul would probably want to preach. Like he's working himself out of a job here. It, But if you trust in Christ, if you're trusting in the gospel, then there's no more boasting in men. It's eliminated. The only room for boasting, if you've truly grasped hold of the gospel, is in Christ alone. That all you have is Christ. That there was no strength in you to come to him. That he has done it all. And so that would be your only boast. And so when that happens, when you've grasped hold of the gospel, what happens is that wisdom starts being evaluated in different terms. So now you're not looking at worldly wisdom and saying, that looks good. And then godly wisdom and saying, well, that looks good too. So well, let's just check it out. No, you're, you're seeing it through God's lens. And so you're saying, that wisdom is not real wisdom at all. This is true wisdom, although it looks like foolishness. You have different standards. You have God's standards where you see the Savior who's on a cross where you get destroyed, where you get humiliated and shamed. And you start to see, no, there's power there. There's forgiveness there. Instead of how the world sees it as Weakness, death, complete defeat. You see victory, triumph. You start to see this message as something that's not foolish, but it's something that is powerful to save. You start seeing people not caring whether they're from noble birth or really smart and sophisticated, but caring who God wants out there. Who does he care about? And so they look through the Corinthian church. They're looking around for anybody that's of noble birth. They're anybody that has some sort of high earthly standing. And they're looking at them. Most of them are, are morons. Most of them are, are in the world's eyes. Most of them are just fools. They're the nobodies. But when you start looking through God's wisdom, you start seeing. No, these, these aren't nobodies. God created them. He called them. He chose them. This is something here. We have a whole, whole bunch of group of nobodies in the world's eyes, but this is something because we're evaluating things differently. So looking at worldly wisdom according to, to God's standard shows that it doesn't stack up. If you look in verse 19, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So God, he looks on this worldly wisdom and he's not impressed. <laughs> And so if anybody came in here today thinking, they're like, man, I'm really wise, or I know somebody really wise and I follow him, and you think that that might be impressive to God, then you're mistaken. 
he, he does not look out on all the worldly wisdom and all the great scholars and all the earth and say, wow, you know, that's really impressive. God's not impressed by worldly wisdom. He says it's folly to him. And in fact, he says at the end, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Now, this is a reference from Job chapter 5, verse 13, where Job's friends, in the light of his suffering, are giving him horrible advice and horrible counsel. But in the midst of that horrible counsel and horrible advice, there's this guy named Eliphaz, and he actually says something true, says something that is true, although he misapplies it pretty badly. But what he does say is this right here. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And the image here is it's kind of this hunting image where you have this hunter who's using the, the prey's very craftiness to escape danger against him. So you've outsmarted your prey. And this is what God has said here. Uh, he's using their craftiness, all their craftiness that, that the world has. Those are the very things he catches them in. So in other words, there, there's, they're thinking that they're able to escape. They're thinking in worldly wisdom that everything is fine, that I don't need God. They're thinking that, that they can do things on their own. They can explain life. And they're thinking that, that, that God doesn't have a part with that. And God catches them in that very thing. They're unable to escape. They are caught. And so the wisdom of the world is shown to be folly with God. He continues, verse 20. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wives, that they are futile. He doesn't have a lot of good to say about the wisdom of the world. Futile, folly, these are not normally words that they'd want to be associated with. This reference comes from Psalm 94, verse 11. where We're seeing here that God knows all of the thoughts of every person. This amazing reality that God knows your thoughts. He is not uh, taken aback by, by different things that happen because he knows your thoughts before you think them. This is our sovereign God. We read in, in Psalm 139, this amazing reality where David says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And so when we start thinking about the absolute sovereignty of God, that he knows every man's thought, like it is too wonderful for us. Like it would blow our mind if we had that kind of idea of what God, how great he was and how sovereign he is, that he knows men's thoughts. I mean, just think about this. He doesn't just know our thoughts, like he created our brains. And so before you even have a thought, God created that brain that has any thought. And so the Lord, when he looks at, at, at wisdom of the world, he has a different perspective than what we have. He has this divine view of wisdom, this divine view of all human thought. And he looks down on it and he is not impressed. He sees all the greatness of the wisdom of the world that we could stack up and all the wealth of knowledge. And he says, those things are futile. That's not real wisdom. He's not fooled. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by any man's wise thought. And like, oh, wow, I can't believe that guy got to that. That's really awesome. No, he sees it all, and he knows that the world's wisdom is futile and foolish. In other words, it, there's no use to it. It's fruitless. It's powerless wisdom. It will get you nowhere in the end. This is God's perspective. Now, most of you have probably played a game during Christmas time called um, Dirty Santa is how I know it. White elephant, maybe. 
better name. I don't know. And what happens in this game is that you basically just bring some random object or whatever laying around the house, and you wrap it up, and you bring it, and you kind of exchange gifts, right? I hope we all know the concept because it won't make much sense without. But what normally happens, and this has happened to us several, several times, is someone will pick like the worst object put it in the best box, wrap it really nicely, and maybe make it extra big so you think that is something to unwrap. That is something that I want to take home. But what inevitably happens is that someone will get to this big box and think that it is going to be awesome. This is going to be the gift, and they will open it up, and they'll find like toilet paper or something completely useless. Well, not toilet paper. It's not useless. (laughs) Maybe not exactly what you'd want for a gift. Better way of putting it. We had this in our home group, and, and Rick actually wrapped up a, a picture of Kenny in his gift. I thought that was a great gift personally, but it's not a lot of gifts that somebody's not going to want to take that home and put it up on their mirror, you know? And it was wrapped really well, and so it can be confusing. The package looks really good on the outside, but on the inside, it's just full of nothing, garbage. That's not that specific gift. Rick's gift actually came with bonus gifts that we don't even need to discuss here. Kenny's picture was just one portion of that great gift. But so often, that's exactly what happens. You come to this game, you, you, you see this greatly wrapped gift, and you open it up, and there's something in there that you do not want at all, and that you'll probably leave behind in that house. This is how God evaluates the wisdom of the world. It looks good to us on the outside. It is wrapped up with great paper and a great bow on top of it. But when it's opened up, it looks like foolishness. It looks futile. And God, in his divine view, has opened up. He knows the thoughts of men and he sees in there and he's saying, that is foolishness. That is folly there. Do not follow that. So don't you think that if this is God's view of things, that if he has this divine view of seeing all all thoughts, that we should listen Does he have something to say? Should we consider his view of things? I think we should. And the conclusion that he draws, based on his standards, is that the wisdom of the world is folly and it's futile. And the wisdom of the world has led them to boast in men. And so the conclusion is we shouldn't boast in men because the grand sum of their wisdom is folly. It's futile. And so let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that we've become wise if we're following the world. Instead, we should listen to Paul and abandon our worldly wisdom, put those things behind, and evaluate wisdom rightly through the word of God. Evaluate wisdom rightly as God's word says. So we embrace this foolish message of the cross, and we evaluate worldly wisdom for what it is, as as worthless, fruitless, leading us nowhere. And when we do that, We're agreeing with God. Your wisdom is greater than our wisdom. And so maybe it doesn't make sense in our minds completely, but we're following your wisdom instead of worldly wisdom because this is what you say. And so when we do that, we set aside worldly wisdom for a new life, a new way of thinking of things, a new way of doing things. This is humility. And the door to Christianity is extremely low. All the way on the ground, people say. So there's only one way in, and that's completely humbled, completely on your face. It's leaving everything behind, worldly wisdom, worldly thoughts of salvation, 
the way to flourish and succeed in life and in a church, we leave that behind. And we crawl in the door and we accept all that God has for us. And so let's not carry over worldly wisdom into the church and expect that to be great. It's not going to work. This is what the Corinthians were doing. And it's damaging the church. It'll damage our church if we do these things. It's causing division. It's destroying community there. It's killing witness. So we need to set those things aside. And instead, as individuals and as a church, we need to realize our utter dependence upon God for wisdom. That it doesn't come from us. And it doesn't come from the world. It comes from God. When we follow the wisdom of the world, we're showing that we think God's wisdom is not good enough. We need to trust in God's wisdom. We rejected that wisdom. We didn't want that wisdom, but God, through his spirit, illuminated us that we might see it for what it is. And those who have grasped hold of the gospel, who have fully trusted in Christ, they see that for what it is. They see that message not as foolish. They don't see the cross as foolish, but they see it as powerful. as something to be hung up and put around your neck because it means something. So we start to see things through, through that lens. And what we need is a church full of people who have become fools in the world's eyes. We need individuals who think they're fools because they're trusting in Christ alone. And their only boast is Him. Trusting in His gospel. And because the gospel is true wisdom from God, there's no room to boast in men. And so let's just say... Hypothetically speaking, you might have men leading your church that don't have all wisdom. I know, hypothetical situation, right? And that maybe a few of the past, even, even four. So let's just say this church had four pastors. And the, they, all, even all four of them collectively don't have all wisdom. Then isn't this good news? You're not following a man and their wisdom. You're following God and his wisdom that he's given to you. Amen. Once again, it's the message I would love to preach, right? Like, don't worry about me, just trust in God. Amen, right? We don't have all wisdom. All four of us, if we added 30 of us, we wouldn't have wisdom. We need wisdom from God to run this thing. Amen. This is the problem in Corinth, is that these men are boasting in one another. They're saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and it's causing division because they're following worldly wisdom. It's not working. It's destroying their community, and Paul is calling them out of those things. Don't deceive yourselves into thinking this is going to work. It's not going to happen. God's seen all that wisdom, and he says, that's foolish. All four of these pastors, we could collect all of our wisdom, and God could look and say, I'm not impressed. We follow God, and we trust in his wisdom. That's what we want to do as a church and as individuals. But there's another big reason not to boast in men. That's a pretty big one. Their, their, their wisdom collectively is not impressive. Don't boast in them. But there's another really big one. He says, you are Christ." So he gives kind of the concluding thought to this passage in verse 21. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. What an interesting thing to say. For all things are yours. This was a common thought in Stoic thinking. So this is something that Corinthians, they knew a lot about. For all are yours. Yeah, the Stoics have said these things. Philosophers have said these things. And what they were doing is they were appealing to people and affirming them in their own self-sufficiency. You know, all things are yours. You're fine. You don't need anything. And so it seems weird for Paul to use this. Is this what he means? Well, I'm, no, obviously. But look down at verse 23. 
for all are yours, for all things are yours, verse 21, and down 23, he's kind of concluding the thought, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So it seems odd that Paul would say, for all are yours, that seems like a, a radical statement, but when we look down, we say, for you are Christ, and Christ is God. And so what Paul isn't doing, he's not heralding their self-sufficiency, instead what he's doing, he's affirming their complete dependency. He's doing the opposite thing, for all things are yours, not because you're great and you have all things, but because you're Christ. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. So he's saying, all things belong to you because you're self-sufficient in and of yourselves? No, but because you're Christ. And what does Christ not own? He owns it all. It's all his. There's every square inch of this whole universe that Christ can say mine to. And so he can say, all things are yours, for you are Christ. And so when we're looking through that lens... He gives a different perspective when he says, for all things are yours. What he's not saying is that you're self-sufficient, but you're completely reliant on Christ. But when you are completely reliant on Christ, when you are Christ, all things are yours. And so you need to look at things differently. And so he goes through some things that they need to look at differently. He says, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And so he kind of gives them a, a, a few items that they need to look at differently. A few things that he's saying are yours. And so I'm, I have one, two, three, four, five of them. I've kind of blended a few together. But the first one is teachers and apostles. They have this system going where they're saying, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Paulos. I belong to Cephas. They, they're, they're causing division because they're boasting in these men. And there was even a super holy group that says, I follow Christ better than all of you guys. That's who we're supposed to follow. But Paul turns this thing upside down. He doesn't say, you belong to Paul, you belong to Apollos, but Apollos and Paul and Cephas, they're all yours. It's, it's completely opposite. Those teachers, the apostles, are yours. Paul has, has just come off chapter 3 saying, I'm nothing. I'm just planting and watering, and God's the one who gives the growth. And I'm a builder, but the foundation is Christ, and it's his building. He's decreasing, once again, him as an individual. The role's still there, but him as an individual, he doesn't care about it. It's the building that matters. It's the field that matters. Those things are yours. Those teachers, those apostles, they're yours. He says, you weren't baptized in the name of Paul. No, you're baptized in the name of Christ. Paul didn't die for you. He wasn't crucified for you. Stop belonging to me. Belong to Jesus. So they're to see this differently, to see their identity, not primarily as someone who follows Paul, but primarily as someone who is Christ. You don't belong to Dylan or Matt Chandler or Jay or Jim or we could go on down the list. You don't belong to those people. We belong to you. It's the opposite. We are here to serve the church. You belong to Christ. Amen. The loyalty that you show is supremely for Jesus. That's where it's to be. You don't belong to Paul or Apollos. You are Christ. And so he wants them to look at that differently. The second one is the world. They don't belong to the world anymore. It's not their home. Before, that's where they thought they could set up permanent residence. We've got to amass a kingdom here. But he, God has called them out of that. So they know that this is not your home. So you need to think differently about the world. You need to live differently than the world. This world is just a gateway to the next for you. It's just a little brief a paragraph in the grand story of things. And so we sojourn here. We don't set up permanent residence in a permanent kingdom. 
We're, we're travelers. We're passing through. We're not going to be here long. And so we don't invest everything here and now. We invest in God's kingdom. We sojourn through this world. We're traveling through. We see the world differently. Life. Life. Life is the next one. He says, this life is not all there is. There's more to it than this. There's something beyond this. In fact, I think Paul would remind them as James does, that your life is just a, a vapor and a mist. It's, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's not going to last long. You need to look at this differently. Worldly wisdom would say, pour into everything life now. And godly wisdom says, your life is a vapor and a mist. There's a better thing waiting for you. There's an eternity awaiting you that is better than you can imagine. And so what we have is new life given to us that starts now and is concluded an eternity future that we can't even fathom. Jesus said he came to give people life and life abundantly. That means you're seeing this life now in its proper perspective and you're looking forward to the fullness of all that life that is to come. This is life and so you're seeing it differently. He goes on, death. We're going to get there in chapter 15, but what happens to death? All of a sudden when you look through worldly wisdom, you think death is a horror that waits every single one of us. When you look through godly wisdom, you're saying death is a door to get to my God forever. And so no longer are we fearful of death anymore. We're not anxious about death. It doesn't mean we're not struggling individually every now and then with those things. I'm not saying it's completely gone. But I am saying, ultimately, our hope in Christ wins out over any of those things in death. We know that death has been swallowed up in victory, that it has lost its sting, that it no longer has a permanent hold on us or our bodies, that Christ has done something there. And so we don't fear it anymore like the world. We don't have anxieties about it anymore like the world. He goes on, your present and your future, I'm concluding, putting those together. So the present that has all these worries and all these cares doesn't overwhelm them. Or the future with the same thing, all the cares and all the worries, it doesn't overwhelm them. They're not desperate and in great depression and, and great fear because of the future. Because they know that's in God's hands. They see it differently. They're looking at things differently because they're Christ. They've just talked about God's sovereignty, and so they don't know what happens in the future, but they trust in God. You're Christ. All these things that he lists here are things that would seek to enslave us to where we would be living for these things, dictating our lives around these things. And think about how much pressure and fear and anxiety and boasting and despair come from these life death, the world, present, the future. Those things no longer hold ultimate sway over us. Those things no longer dictate our lives. Those things no longer have power over us. We are Christ. This is what he's reminding them of. He wants them to see this through a different angle. Not that you're your own or the world's. You are Christ. We're subject to him. In fact, Romans says that we're heirs of Christ. We, we inherit all that Christ has, which is everything. So it's a pretty good deal. So for, when, for us to come and claim, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Dylan, or John, or Matt Chandler, or on and on we could go, is to boast much too little. Much too little. You don't belong to an individual. That's, that's very narrow. You belong to Christ. He has all things. And you're going to be an heir with Christ. 
That's a much better boast than saying, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos. Or we could go on down the line. It's much too narrow to do that. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis quote. says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased and we are far too easily deceived into thinking that I need to follow one person or a group of people and thinking that is enough. No, that is much too narrow. Get a bigger lens. Follow Christ. You're his. I remember Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Great kids movie. Great movie that I like to watch as an adult. So I guess I call it a kids movie, but I still like it. So, Character that's in there is kind of chubby. His name is Augustus Gloop. What a great name for, for a character, Augustus Gloop. He's kind of a chubby guy. He liked to eat. And so this is probably how he, he got into the chocolate factory. He started eating chocolate bars a lot and wanted to go into the factory. So just, I mean, just keep piling them away. And I think he even kind of gnawed off some of his golden ticket to get into the factory as he was eating this chocolate bar. But he gets to go into the, the chocolate factory. And, and as they go in, you remember with uh, Gene Wilder, the old one, they, they go into this great room where like everything is edible. I always wanted to go to a room like that. You can lick the trees, you can eat whatever, like it's awesome. But Augustus Gloop like kind of has his sights narrowed in on one thing because he loves chocolate and he sees a chocolate river flowing. And so he is glued and he immediately goes over and starts like lapping this chocolate like a dog. Augustus Gloop, he has no pride. Like, he wants his food, like, he wants his chocolate, so he's going to get it. I mean, I, I would love to go in a room like that. And, and it seemed always, I'm like, Augustus, like, what are you doing? Like, chocolate, there's tons of things to explore here. Like, go try something else. Don't just be stuck on the river. And eventually the river kind of takes him in and he's eliminated from the, the whole thing. But the, this is the first room they go in. There's an entire factory to explore. There could be huge wonders everywhere else, but he's stuck on this chocolate river and gets pulled in. That's, that's a much too narrow view. And this is the same idea that the Corinthians are doing. You have much too narrow of a view. There's much more here than following and belonging to Paul or Apollos or Cephas. It's so easy for us as individuals or as a church to get caught up in something that's so much smaller than God would have for us. And he's trying to call us out of that saying, you are Christ. These teachers and pastors, they're servants. They belong to the church. They're to serve the church, not the other way around. You don't belong to them. They belong to the church. World, life, death, present, future. These can narrow our focus, monopolize our time, cause distress, divert our attention. That is too narrow, he says. You are Christ. He's reminding them. He's reminding us to stop messing around with those things. There's freedom to go over all over the factory. Don't get stuck in a chocolate river. Don't give in to this idea that worldly wisdom is going to lead you in a place that you want to go and boast in men. Don't attach your name to Paul or Paul's. Attach your name to Christ or let him attach his name to you. We're to remember that we are Christ and that changes everything. Now, instead of belonging to Paul and cutting ourselves off from this huge thing that is our inheritance in Christ, we can receive from Christ. We can see all the inheritance and say we're belonging to him. He's the one we're actually following. And so at Sojourn, we have a, a plurality of pastors because one, we're convicted by the scripture that, that that's the model but so that we can see that, that, that there's a, a danger in, in following one individual. 
and that four have a much greater amount of wisdom than one. But we do not have a plurality of leaders and pastors so that you can pick your favorites. We, we have the opposite in mind, that you would be Christ and that we could just be servants and stewards along the way. We want that for our home group leaders. We don't want you to say, I belong to this group and it's the best group better than every other group. No. Group leaders are just to serve the greater cause. We're not trying to, to circle the groups around one individual or a couple. We're trying for everybody to see their identity as Christ. We can all gain from that kind of perspective. And this is possible and it's good because it's true. Because we are Christ. And so let no one boast in men. Instead, let your only boast be in the Lord. That's whose you are. You're his. Don't boast as if you're not his. Belonging to Christ is so much better than that anyway. He's the one who frees us from the world, from life, from death, from the present, from the future. He's the one that frees us from all that would seek to enslave us. And what does Paul add at the end of verse 23? You are Christ and Christ is God. In other words, there's a basis for this freedom that we have from those things. There's a basis for that. All those things that would seek to enslave us, he says, you're Christ, all things are yours, and Christ is God's. And so what he's saying when he says Christ is God's, he said that the, what freed you was Christ, the one who perfectly obeyed the Father, the one who lived in obedience, even unto death, the one who won our freedom from those things. So now when he says you are Christ and Christ is God's, Christ belonged to God. He, he wanted to fully do the will of the Father so that he could set us free from those things. As Romans 1 through 4, 8, 1 through 4 says, there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God did what the law, weakened by our sinful flesh, couldn't do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So we could be free from these things. Christ is God's and we are Christ's. So there's a basis for our freedom for freedom, Christ has set us free, and we're not our own. We're Christ, and Christ is God. Therefore, all things are ours, and we are to honor Christ in our bodies. Was kind of the point from Romans 8. All things are ours. We are Christ, and Christ is God. And so, let no one boast in men. Men's wisdom is folly. Worldly wisdom is folly. And beyond that, you belong to Christ. There's so much more. And so may we make our boast in the Lord, the one who lived the life that we should have lived but could not live, the one who died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, even though he was without sin, the one who was raised. Even death couldn't hold him. This is the one that we boast in. He's the one that sets us free from Satan, from sin, from death. And here at Sojourn, what we do is we like to make that boast. And there's a, a very prominent way that Christ has given us to make that boast, and that's called the Lord's Supper. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took a loaf of bread after supper and he broke it. So this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. We're remembering Christ's death. We're remembering that Christ is the one who was broken, not us. We couldn't pay for our sins. Christ had to do that. And he took a cup of wine after supper. And he says, this is my blood for the new covenant. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we're remembering. Our blood wasn't enough. 
We could give our life and it wouldn't be enough because we have sin running through us. But Christ with no sin says, this is my body and my blood given for you that you might have peace with the holy God, that you may be made right in the sight of God. And so what we do here is we take off a piece of the bread and we dip it into the juice and we remember what Christ has won for us. We remember how Christ has set us free from Satan, from sin, from death, from the world, from, from the present and from the future. We remember those things. And so I would encourage you, when you come to this table, what you're doing is you're making your boast in Lord only. You're making your boast in Christ. And so if that is not your only boast, if you can boast anything else besides Christ alone, then do not come and take this. If you can boast in your works, if you can boast in your wisdom, if you can boast in any of those things, don't take this meal. This meal is for those who are saying, I could not do it. I belong to Christ. He's the only one that could do it for me. And we're remembering that when we trust in that, when we trust in the gospel, that we truly are Christ. We are fully his. And that he says of all of us, you are co-heirs. You belong to Christ. That's what we're saying when we take this meal. So I'm going to pray for us and then encourage you guys, if you know Jesus, if you've fully trusted in him, if he is your only boast, come and celebrate what he's done for you. Remember what he's done. But if you're not a believer, take Christ. Every other boast is not going to stand before God. No work, no wisdom is going to work before God. He sees your thoughts. He knows your heart. He wants to call you out of that to something greater. And so if you don't know Jesus, don't take this meal. Take Christ. And then maybe next time we'll prepare you to join in the celebration that is this meal. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that our only boast would be Jesus, that we could be able to proclaim and sing with all of our heart that all we have is Christ, that Jesus is our life. And may that be what guides this church into the future, that we don't belong to Paul or Paul, we belong to Christ. That all things are ours because we are Christ and Christ is God's. God, would you show us the, the depth of that great truth? And would you turn our eyes from the narrow things that we are focused on so often to something so much greater? I pray for those who don't know Christ that they would take him now that they would fully trust in him, turning from their sins and fully believing in him. And I pray for those who do know him, that you would grow us and remind us and encourage our souls that when we come to this table, we do not come because we have done something. We come because Christ has already done it all for us, that we are fully accepted. That's what we're pronouncing in this, this supper, that we're fully accepted in God's sight based on what Christ has done. May we make that boast now and may you be pleased in this body proclaiming Christ in this supper. It's in his name that we pray, amen.